This episode of The First Mile is supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. If you love The First Mile, you'll love Further Faster. It features interviews with some of the world's greatest ultra-athletes, climbers and adventurers about exploring the world's most extreme environments. We regularly listen to Further Faster for inspiration, and I would particularly recommend the episode with Jenny Tuff, where she talks about why she spends three weeks running through the mountains with just a backpack for company. Just search for Further Faster on the same podcast app that you found the first mile. Welcome to the first mile with Ash Bardwaj and Pip Stewart, in which we learn how travel, adventure and storytelling can change you and the way you look at the world. In this episode, we meet award-winning travel writer Manisha Rajesh, who made her name with the books Around India in 80 Trains and Around the World in 80 Trains. This is a brilliant in-depth episode in which we learn how Manisha made the jump from magazine journalism to travel writing. She also shares some top tips on traveling with kids, and she tells us why we need more diversity in travel writing. Now, as well as Manisha, we were joined in this episode by her baby, Maya. So if you hear any cooing and babbling in the background, it's not Pip or I passing out, but Maya adding her own thoughts to the conversation. And if you enjoy this episode, please could you do a couple of things to help others find the first mile. Subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app. It doesn't have to be long. But for now, please enjoy this conversation with Manisha Rajesh. So, Manisha, thank you so much for inviting us into your home and welcome to The First Mile. Thank you very much, Pip. So, Manisha, we're really interested to know about your philosophy on travel. Like, what kind of sparked your interest in travel writing and has there been a particularly memorable experience? It's, oh, it's interesting, actually, because a lot of travel writers that I sort of spoke to when I was, you know, doing my books and things said that their sort of love of travel writing came from growing up in very quiet places where they never got to travel and they just wanted to get away from where they were but with me I think it's because I spent most of my life traveling because my parents were both doctors and we moved every couple of years from when I was about three up to probably being about 16 or 17 and I think because I was always plucked out of one place and had to settle in a new one I was so used to just meeting new people, moving around, getting used to new situations, new places, um, that I found that I just got quite bored after a while when I was in any one place for too long. And I think I've just always found that I needed to be on the move, I needed to be sort of thriving off something new all the time. Um, That after I trained in journalism, I think travel sort of just came, it just sort of came about as something that I was sort of going to end up doing, I think. Was it something you aimed for? Was there ever a particular moment where you thought travel writing is what I want to do? Or did the writing of the journalism come first? Um, oddly enough, when I, I so I, I did a postgraduate diploma at City University's journalism programme. Um, and I remember during my interview when they said, you know, what position do you see yourself holding and where do you want to be? And I said, I want to be editor of Empire And I was really into film journalism and I was obsessed with that. And that's what I used as my kind of interview tactic to get in. And I probably did reviews and things for about a year and I never even considered travel writing. But I was working as a sub-editor actually at Time magazine back in 2009. Um, I was just on the copy desk a couple of days a week. And I sort of wasn't doing very much writing at all. I was mainly doing editing. And I was just reading an article about how India's domestic airlines could cover 80 cities. And it was part of the work that I was doing that day. 
And I remember just pulling up the map and thinking, like, 80 cities, this is incredible. And I looked through the list and I didn't recognise even half of the names. And I felt a bit ashamed because I'm British Indian and I'd lived in India very briefly when I was about nine. For two years, my parents had tried to move back and it hadn't worked out and we'd come back. And I just hadn't gone back for more than 20 years, um, at least not for any long stretch of time. And I'd always wanted to go back and visit properly and sort of reassess my relationship with it. And I had loads of friends from uni who'd sort of gone gap years and things and kept coming back and telling me what a great place it was. Um, And literally in about five minutes, I remember thinking, I'd love to go and visit all these 80 cities and travel around India in, in 80 planes. And then I thought, no, I don't want to do it by 80 planes because that's horrendous. Like my carbon footprint would be massive. I would spend so much money doing this. I wouldn't actually get to see anything in between. And while I was looking at the same map, I could just see this sort of like embroidery all over the country. And when I looked at the quay, I saw that it was Indian Railways. And I couldn't believe how far it spread out. And it went way above and beyond anything that the airlines could take you to and went into every nook and cranny of the country, like literally up to the furthest north and right into the east, almost up to Bangladesh. And I thought, I wonder if I could do around Indian 80 trains. And I remember that moment when I actually sort of thought about it. And then it just suddenly seemed so daunting. And I just thought, no way, that's never going to happen. But it just stayed with me and it just sat in the back of my mind for about two months till I finally sat down and actually looked at the map and I looked at how long I thought it would take me to travel around in 80 trains and I suddenly thought this is quite doable and I looked up online to the Indian Railways representative in the UK and it was I think for 90 days to get an Indrail pass it was £350 and I figured that I could probably do four months of travel for 350 quid, and then just tag on a few trains after that so I worked out that I could do 20 trains a month and it would cost me no more than about 500 pounds in tickets. Because one of the things that people often say about travel and adventure travel is the cost of yeah. it. I mean I spend more on the London Underground yeah, completely. than you've spent traveling around the whole of India. Yeah absolutely and and that's why I decided to go and do it because and I remember very vividly that the Indrail pass that I bought was so old I mean they probably not updated these tickets from sort of the 70s or 80s it was this really really tissue thin rail pass which had 540 dollars written on it and then a biro strike through it when they'd updated the prices and this is bearing in mind that it included all my sleeper trains most of my food as well on certain services I mean I think the whole trip for four and a half months cost me probably about 1500 pounds Wow, that's and that's incredible. why I went and did it because I, I I was copy editing two days a week, you know I was just about staying afloat, and then they actually made the desk that I worked on redundant, and from January onwards I was going to have no work, so it was either go for a full time job, or just buy this ticket, get on a plane, and see what happened, and I just did it. I just decided to just go, and I thought I can just about fund myself for about five months. And the intent was always to write the book. I thought Around India and 80 Trains sounds like a good book title. I went on Amazon to see how many people had written full-on books on Indian railways. And I just assumed there'd be loads. It just seems such an obvious topic to cover Indian railways because, you know, that's one of the BBC's favourite topics. You can't, you know, make a year without there being a documentary about it. Um, And I was really taken aback that there weren't any. There was no one had done like a full-on thorough Indian Railways book for for years there just didn't seem to be anyone who'd done an up-to-date full-on journey I thought okay great well there's a space there I mean there might be a reason why no one's done it and I'll find out when I get there but I figured it was worth the shot anyway 
And I was very lucky, actually, at the time. I met a guy who was just a friend of a friend who was a photographer who happened to have been made redundant around the same time, who wanted to go traveling to China. And I convinced him to just come to India instead. So he brought his redundancy package and came with me. So I had a ready-made photographer on hand. Yeah. So you had the... You did the entire project before you then tried yeah. to get a commission. Yeah, I did. So um, a university friend of mine said, why don't you set up... I mean, this was 2009 when blogs were... Like, blogs were a big thing then. And he said, just set up a blog. He said, I'll just do a really straightforward WordPress thing. And so he split it in half. So on one side were, you know, my photographer's pictures. And on the other half of the page was my rolling WordPress. And I just did a blog every week. And... I think because I had that to do every week and I knew I had a few people following me on Twitter and family and friends following it, it gave me that drive to actually set out and try and find the stories that I wanted um, rather than just a kind of diary that I was putting up there. Um, And it was a good way to kind of fine tune my stories and what I was looking for. And so by the end of that four and a half months, I had probably had about 20 blogs up there of about 500 words each. And those, I could see how they would then divide up into chapters in a book. And there were a lot of anecdotes and things, but there was, I could see there was a really strong theme in there that I could turn into a book. Um, But I just needed to obviously find an agent. I needed to find a publisher. I had no idea how I'd go about it. And actually, I was in a bookshop in Delhi one day and I just got chatting to the owner and he said, oh, this is perfect. I'm a literary agent. I can give you a publishing deal. This is an amazing book. This is a great concept. And it was all just a bit too quick for my liking. And he actually gave me um, a contract. He printed out a contract and he said, just just sign here. And I said, well, just hold yeah, on. hold up Don't, a bit. You know, two minutes. <laughs> let me I'll read just, it first. Let me just have a look through this. And it all seemed too good to be true. And so I sort of went back to my hotel that evening and I, I Googled agents in London because I didn't even know whether if I signed a contract in India, did it mean that I could then not publish in the UK? I had no idea how the industry worked. And I came across an agent who... He just represented on his list, he had a lot of writers that I read, like William Dalrymple, Arundhati Roy, Kiran Desai, you know, Vikram Seth. And I thought, okay, he obviously has a lot of Indian writers on his books. He must care a lot about the kind of Indian market or Indian diaspora, at least. And so I just dropped him a line through what I figured out was probably his email address. So I just emailed him with the contract saying, Dear David, I've just been given this in Delhi. I'm not trying to pitch you my book idea, but I wondered if you had a couple of minutes to just look through this contract and let me know what you think of it. And I was chatting to my brother a few days later on the phone and he said, he is never going to get in touch with you. He said he probably gets hundreds of these emails every day. You need to call him. You need to go and, you know, doorstep him when you get home. And... Um, my phone was beeping at the same time and so I hung up on my brother and it happened to be David and I just had this, this very sweet voice just said is that, is that Manisha and I said yes it is and he says David Godwin speaking and he said have you signed that contract and I said no I haven't and he said good don't it's the most awful thing I've ever read in my whole life and they're trying to really stiff you what? and he said have you finished your trip yet and I said no I'm, I'm sort of three weeks away from the end and he said right finish your trip and he said come back and we'll have a cup of tea and we'll chat and I'll explain to you how all of this works. And then he said, in the meantime, could you just send me some links to things that you've written or anything that you have that I could see? And so I just sent him a link to the blog. And he wrote back a few days later saying, lovely. He said, I think this will make for a really great book. And that's just how it happened. So when I went back home, I went to meet David in his little office in Covent Garden. And I just had a really lovely feeling from him. And he said, I don't charge you anything up front. Nobody should. And he said, I need 
to get on with you. I need to like you and we need to be friends because I'm going to be handling your money. And he said, and we need to be on the same page. And if you're not happy with that, that's fine. Um, so I just, I, I signed on with David and he was, he was brilliant. He really sort of held my hand through the whole process. And he said, you know, let's put a proposal together and I'll sort of talk you through it and help you edit it. And I think because he'd been able to sit and read the blogs at length, he had a really good idea of my writing style and he could see what sort of shape the book would take. And we, we actually sold it in India before I'd written it because um, they just liked the premise. But then we waited to sell it in the UK until the book had actually been written fully. So, so that, was, that was my publishing story, which I know is, you know, they're, they're all completely different. Um, but mine, yeah, was, I guess it was a fairly haphazard way of doing it, but it still, sort of produced, it still produced the goods. Maya's very excited about that, aren't you? Are you proud of mummy? Because my first thought was, wow, that's really serendipitous, like really lucky. And then I actually thought about it and I was like, no, that's not lucky because you had the strategic decision to get out there. Yeah. You then chased up with an agent. You had the balls to kind of put it out there and say, can you check this? Mm. So there's a lot of like self-motivated yeah. work happening. And there. I think because I'd sort of got, I didn't just have an idea that I wanted to discuss with him. I'd, I'd got the work done. I'd got the photographer. I'd got the, you know, the website showed exactly what kind of stories would be in the book. Um, I mean, I know each blog was only about 500 words and each chapter was about 5,000, but it was a really good backbone for me to know what I was going to build on. But yeah, I think because it was, it's difficult with travel, I think, because to get a kind of good advance to go out, a publisher needs to know what you're going to do, but you can't show them because you've not gone yet. And I think because I'd sort of gone and done it already and I knew exactly what my stories were going to be, I knew what my narrative arc was going to be, they, they were able to say, yes, okay, let's sort of take a punt on this. And is that the advice you give to sort of budding young travel writers out there? Just go, go and just, do these yeah, things? Yeah, just go and do it because there are so many people everywhere wanting to do it because travel's so much fun it's it's so fun it's so enlightening it's so educational um and I think at the moment travel writing's taken it's taken quite an interesting turn in the last 10 years I think in terms of who's actually doing travel writing and what travel writing is because for me travel writing is going somewhere that I don't know where I'm the stranger finding new stories discovering things and bringing it back to people whereas I find a lot of bylines in newspapers now are bloggers from the actual place that they're writing about. So, you know, you'll get a food specialist from, say, Lisbon, who's born in Lisbon, grown up in Lisbon, and they're writing about food from there for a UK paper. And to me, I don't feel that that's travel writing because that's you're writing on your own doorstep. And I do find a, a lot of that is probably becoming... It's probably becoming very competitive now because commissioning editors can just find food blogs of people or travel blogs of people who live in those cities and rather than sending a writer out paying for them to go all the way there to do the same work that someone there can do for them um, I think it has made the market really competitive and that's why I would say if you want to if you want to actually get anywhere with it go just go yourself and place yourself there and become the specialist on something the if you can about, afford it. Well, the making ends meet, yeah. I think, is one of the yeah. biggest misconceptions of travel writing. Yeah. Um, when I speak to people and tell them that I'm a travel writer, they presume that the newspaper has paid for all of my flights, pays for all of my living costs. Oh, you and wish. Then, <laughs> and then pays me thousands of pounds on top. And yeah. even if I write a long article for The Telegraph, mm. which is one of the best paying best newspapers, paid ones. Yeah. that's maybe 400 quid. And it takes me a couple of days to write the piece, yeah. um, a day to do the pitching and the back and forth of the sure. emails, and then the travel time itself as well. So 
how do you make your ends meet with with your writing? Right at the beginning, you mentioned before you went and wrote the book, you were doing subbing, yeah. copying, editing. Yeah. And subbing is reading through articles that have yeah. been filed to check that they, the spelling's correct, that it's been laid out properly and yeah. double-checking so, facts. Yeah, exactly. So the, so the sub-editor's job is fundamentally, when it's gone through the features edit, it's all been edited and it's about, you know, it's going to go to print. Your job is to fact-check, to check all names are spelt correctly, to make sure dates are correct, to make sure that everything is cut to fit the page. You often do the headlines and the sort of stand-first that go underneath picture captions and it's it's a nice job where you're sort of cleaning up the copy um but it's it's also it's just it's good work and you know most magazines and newspapers look for subbing shifts so if you are a you know trainee journalist or you're looking to move into journalism it's definitely something to make sure that you've really fine-tuned your subbing skills because it's there are always subbing shifts and it's great to fall back on and I tend to do a lot I still do it now I do a lot of subbing and proofing from home um, I have PDFs coming in from magazines and I can sit and read them quietly in the evening when children have gone to bed. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a great way to keep your, your freelancing afloat. You talked a little bit there about younger people coming into travel journalism. Yeah. And I read um, a comment that you made in one interview that said, you personally read very little travel journalism yeah. because it's mainly dominated mm. by white writers. And something I think you're very passionate about is getting more diversity and representation into journalism. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and also about how do we affect change? Yeah, I think um, it's funny. My editor, when we were sort of going through my proposal and when I'd submitted my manuscript, was asking me, you know, who I used to read as travel writers when I grew up. And I didn't want to be honest and say actually almost no one because I just couldn't relate to people. I couldn't relate to Paul Theroux. I couldn't relate to Colin Tubron. You know, I'm, they're all middle-aged white men who, quite honestly, just sort of, I felt just stride into countries with this very unchecked privilege and a complete lack of understanding of what travel feels like to other people. And as a, you know, young brown woman, when I would read, you know, the Great Railway Bazaar or, you know, Riding the Iron Rooster, I just couldn't relate to it at all because I couldn't imagine just being able to get on a train at night time and just move into a new town and just walk around in the early hours and to just be accepted everywhere as well and to just walk into a room and not have everyone turn around and look at you or to just be able to walk into a bar and sit there comfortably and not be harassed or not be stared at. And so I didn't, I honestly didn't read very much travel writing. Um, but even now, when I sort of look at the Sunday travel sections of almost all the papers, almost all the bylines are white writers. And there is still a very much a sense of, I feel like there's a very kind of post-colonial trend of writing. I mean, I've read a story not that long ago about, you know, going to check out plantations and talking about how they could understand why the slaves had stayed after emancipation because the views were so beautiful. And, you know, you just sort of look at that and think, that's that's white privilege that's allowing you to write this because you haven't any concept of what somebody else might think when they go there or what black people think when they see you writing about how wonderful plantations are and the photographs of southern bells, you know, twirling their umbrellas. And it's it's that sort of complete lack of awareness that is, I think, making people like me not want to read any of these things anymore. And it, it really does have to change because you're just looking at the world through one prism through your own prism of being a white person who doesn't even have to really consider visas for most countries. You know, you're not stared at, you're not looked at, you're, you're received very well in most countries that you turn up in. And 
you don't really get to grips with a country in the same way that somebody else might. And I was at a travel festival recently and um, a black girl in the audience put up a hand and she said, um, I hated Russia. I couldn't, I would never go back. It was so frightening for me. I was stared at constantly that I set foot out of the hotel for a couple of hours and I went straight back and I just stayed in my room till my flight left. And and I could completely empathise with her because when my husband and I were travelling for my book, we took a suburban train out of Moscow to a place called Kubinka, which was a good hour and a half um, way into the suburbs to a really poor area. Um, and within about 20 minutes of being on the train, we knew that we shouldn't be on that train because we were just stared at by people, really unabashed looks of, you know, who on earth are you and why are you here? And we were spat at when we got off the platform at the other end um, to the point where I said, I, th I think we should just get on the train and go back. And he said, no, let's just, you know, we came this far. Let's see how far we get and we'll be okay. And, you know, we took a taxi literally almost in a circle and decided to come back to the station because it was just so unpleasant. And you, I could just feel under my skin, this sense of foreboding and you just shouldn't be here. And I, had never read about that about Russia anywhere before. And it was because I'd never read any black or brown person writing about Russia in any newspaper or in any book. And I came away thinking, well, but you know what? That's my story and that's my experience and that's going in my book. And I think often when people write about places, there is this tendency to write in a very similar way where people are... Maya looks very interested in what I'm saying. It really does. <laughs> where people are unwilling to talk about some of the more unpleasant parts mm. that might affect other people. But there's also yeah. this um, exoticization yeah. or orientalization of the place. And when you went traveling around India for your first book, did you feel, before you left, did you feel any responsibility to write about it as a person of Indian origin, as the Indians like to call yeah call us nris not NRIs. real indians <laughs> and um and how important is that element in the increasing diversity of writing yeah so w when i went to do my first book i think i was so passionate about writing india fairly just because i don't think i, I mean i've never read up until that point i'd never read anything about india that i thought was justified or fair or honest um Mainly because I think people really enjoy this exoticization of, you know, the other and smiling people and lovely bright colours. And it's you're just skimming the surface of a country. You're really not looking at what else it has to offer. You're not, you know, beyond that lovely stereotype of Indian weddings and, you know, the smells. And there's a lot more to a country than that. There's so much more to it. There's more to the people. They're not just, you know, find out why they're smiling at you like that. You know, go and ask them if you can go and have a look at their schools, go and have a look in their houses, go and talk to them, actually get beneath the surface of that, you know, exterior that makes you feel good about where you've gone, but you don't actually know how they feel about it. And I was just very tired of reading these stories that it just seems so stale. I think that's what it was. It was very stale. It was very boring. There was nothing new. Um, and every person that went and wrote about these places seemed to write about it as though they discovered this for the first time. One of my favourite pieces you've ever written was a parody article <laughs> in which um, you took all of the different cliches about right, travel writing about India. If someone wants to find that article online... What, oh what yeah, so, so so it's on a website called civilianglobal.com, which is it's it's a great website. It's just very irreverent, um, 
spot where you you can literally write anything you want about travel, whether it's, you know, what business class airlines are like these days or, yeah, a satire about traveling through India. And I just, I think I just got so fed up of reading comments like, this is India light, or we haven't quite got to grips with real India or there are mountains of spices in the corner and the traffic is noisy and oh there's a cow in the road and the cows are holy and it's just so very very boring and i think you forget that you've got you know mega cities like bombay with you know people like you and me going out clubbing on a friday night and you know just there's so much going on it's there's it's just every possible layer and real india is not you know, just meeting people in fishing villages who smile at you and invite you into their homes. That's not real India. Every single bit of it is real. Every bit, every element is real. And I think that's what's missing. There's people just go in and take a tiny slice of it and think that this is all there is. So yes, yeah, so when I went to do my book, I wanted, I wanted to just do something different. I wanted to get beneath all of that. I wanted to, you know, let people speak. And I think that's something that I feel misses you know, is missed in travel writing a lot. It's very much a case of this is what I've seen, this is what I've noticed, and this is what I think of it. So this must be what it is. And I'll put that as the absolute, you know, fact of what I've seen out there without actually talking to anybody. And very rarely I read travel pieces where they've actually engaged with the people and asked them what they feel about it and found out, you know, what's the economy like in this place and what's the employment like and, you know, how is your day-to-day existence and what do you eat and what do you do and where do you hang out? And that's the sort of stuff that I find interesting. I'm not really that bothered about how you felt about it and, you know, how nice your mint julep tasted by the swimming pool. I want to know you know, what your people around you are doing every day. That's that's what's going to make me want to go to a country. I think that's the thing. I want to know what's going to draw me over there. So it actually improves the quality of travel writing. You're not just reading the experience of a person. You are genuinely learning about a place if there's a more nuanced way of writing about it. And you think diversity is key to this as well? Very much so, because like I was saying before, you you only get a very... You get a very skewed sense of a place if you're only ever hearing it from the perspective of a white man. In the same way, you know, if you had somebody in a wheelchair who's traveling through China, they would be able to tell you a lot more about, you know, what accessibility is like, how how people are treated if you're, you know, in a wheelchair and what it's like to try and get onto a train. And and I actually had somebody write to me and say that. They said, you you know, you don't really address that very much. And I was suddenly very aware of it and realized that actually I hadn't. And I had a responsibility to write more about what that's like for people to travel. And also traveling as a woman. Traveling as a woman is a very different experience from traveling as a man. It's just a fact. Um, (laughs) And somebody agrees with me. Maya is well on board with that fact, aren't you, Maya? (laughs) But yes, it does. It It just opens up travel to so many more people who I think are more likely to go and visit somewhere if they know that someone else has been first and sort of opened those doors for them and told them the things that they've probably always wanted but been a bit too nervous to ask. How do you think we can change it? How do you think we can improve the diversity in the travel writing? Commissioning editors. It has to start at the top. And, you know, I think that's the issue everywhere. I mean, I was just thinking about it this morning before you came over. I have never, ever been commissioned by an editor who wasn't white in my entire travel writing experience, apart from one editor in the US. And that says everything. Because when you are white and you're commissioning, you're only thinking in terms of white writers. You're only thinking in terms of what you would be used to seeing on the page or what you would be used to reading and what you would 
be used to, you know, telling your other readers to go and, and, and look at. And I think whenever editors say, oh, you know, we need to think about what our readers want, you do need to think about what your readers want. And you also need to remember who your readers are. And if your readers are, you know, predominantly, you know, white and middle class, you need to change that. It's your responsibility to make sure that you're engaging working class people who can go traveling the same places or people who don't have, you know, massive funds to go trekking around and just take gap years. And, you know, people who are black and brown who, you know, think, well, is it safe for me to travel there? Am I going to have a good time? Am I going to be accepted? Am I going to, you know, feel safe at night? Am I going to be allowed into hotels? Are I going to be turned away? Which, you know, has happened to so many friends of mine in different parts of the world. And I've never read that in papers or guidebooks because the people writing those guidebooks and those newspaper articles aren't brown or black. And that's just how it works. So, yeah, I think I think commissioning editors need to be representative of the people that are going to be reading those pages. And who do you read now? Who would you recommend? Like what authors are sort of top of your list to read? I think Nu Sarah Wewa is a fantastic writer. She wrote a book called Looking for Trans Wonderland, Travels in Nigeria. Um, she was brought up in England and every summer she used to go back to Nigeria. And then her father was murdered there and she didn't return for 10 years. Um, and finally she goes back and decides to go and sort of paint this portrait of a country as a sort of love letter to her father um and I, I absolutely adored that book because I I had literally never read a book by a woman of color before that was on travel it was actually kind of what pushed me to believe that I could keep doing travel writing because to some degree I had a bit of imposter syndrome when I thought hang on a minute every single person that I could name as a travel writer is a white man and they sort of have been from the time of memorial with you know a few women there's you know pioneers like Devla Murphy and you know Sarah Wheeler but not very many more and certainly not very many brown women if any um, and so yeah she made me realize that I, I could do this because I did I did have days where I thought am I setting foot into something that's not my domain not my space is there a, is there a reason why there's no one else doing this um, and then I just built up the confidence to forge my own space and make my space and sort of push and make sure that I I sort of stand out in the middle of them all that's amazing because I think there's that saying isn't there you can't be what you can't see and I think mm. when we talk about racism especially we tend to think of it in moral terms yeah. whereas actually it sounds like what you're talking about is more of like a systemic power institutionalized yeah, it is. Um, racism that we need to sort of address acknowledge yeah. and confront in order to start yeah making these shifts yeah. getting commission editors to change yeah. who they're commissioning and encouraging new young writers and new young voices yes Definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. And talking of new young voices, yeah. <laughs> Maya has been awesome this whole interview. She's been babbling away, smiling and like adding in her commentary. Um, how has being a mum of two kids changed your, your life, your work? And is it possible to travel with kids? And I say this as someone who's seven months pregnant. Well, I wrote my second book, Around the World in 80 Trains, when my first daughter was a baby. I became pregnant a lot faster than I thought I would and so I had got a book to submit within nine months of her being born and my editor oh my was gosh. very sweet and he said you know I'm very happy to push back the deadline and you can have as long as you want but there was no point in pushing it back because she wasn't going to go anywhere and she was only going to get bigger and I'd just have more on my hands so I just went ahead and did it and so I was very lucky that I was able to stay with my parents for quite a large chunk of time and so they you know looked after her from seven in the morning till about 10 o'clock at night while I just sat in a study in my pajamas and wrote 
and my mom would just bring her in for feeds every two or three hours. Um, it was draining, but at the same time, I found that I have never been so productive in my life. And I think when you know you've got this finite time and you know that someone's going to come in and want feeding in two hours, you just end up writing the probably the strongest, best copy that you, you ever will because you know that you've got a tiny amount of time to do it. And I guess no it distractions. the mind, right? It really does. <laughs> and there's no distractions. I mean, I, I couldn't even consider going on Facebook or Twitter or emails or anything like that. And I would just sit and go through my notes and make sure I did whatever I could in that time. And also, I think I was terrified at the same time that what I was writing was nonsense because I was so sleep deprived that I was editing constantly. I would write one day and then the next morning just go through the whole lot and keep going through it. Um, I think it it's definitely possible to do, but you need to need to be aware of how much support you've got. And also, you know, give yourself a bit of a break as well, because I think I've been doing quite a lot of literary festivals this year and I'm always asked afterwards, you know, so what's next? What's the next book? And now my first daughter's two and a half and the second one is six months. And I just couldn't imagine traveling around the world by train with them both now. I mean, trying to deal with sleeping in a stationary home is, you know, tough as it is. But I've, I've certainly traveled with them. They've been on loads of trains around the UK with me. And I think the more you just travel with them, the better it becomes and the more adaptable they are and the more you... St- to it you get as well you sort of pick up little tips of things that you can do along the way um I think it's just a fear as well of whether you're going to be able to manage it but like anything I think if you just sort of feel the fear and do it anyway you can figure it out but I think for the time being I'm going to just take my foot off the pedal a bit and just enjoy being with them but it's definitely not going to stop me from yeah from getting and you mentioned tips so for any parents or would-be parents out there have you got any sort of travel tips because a lot of people have said all adventure and, and babies are just not compatible Well, I think, you know, trains are compatible, I think, with children. They really are because, I mean, my two and a half year old is absolutely obsessed with trains. And we live just behind the railway lines, which she adores. Um, She's really into them. And every time we've been on the train, she's absolutely loved it in a way that flying really hasn't been very fun with her. Because, you know, like anyone, you want to stretch your legs and run around. And a two-year-old tearing up and down the plane is not fun for anybody, least of all her. Um, but yeah, train travel is is very conducive with children. I think that's something that people need to consider more and more, not least because of, you know, we're all very aware of our carbon footprints now and our emissions, but it is, it is a really safe, very fun way to travel with kids. Um, another tip, which I told you about, 20 minutes ago is if you're traveling with babies put them in giant size nappies so that you don't have to worry about you know spillages and that sort of thing keep plenty of snacks keep lots of little tupperware boxes of yeah. fruit nappies keep, literally up to their armpits literally right? up to armpits yeah my <laughs> six-month-old wears her two-year-old sister's nappies when we're on a train and the nappy straps under her armpits to make sure that nothing happens <laughs> and it served us really well so far Um, yeah just make sure that you've got lots of snacks lots of snacks lots of pencils always keep something in your bag that they've never seen before so have a you know a new toy a new packet of crayons or something that they didn't know they had so when they start to get stressed out and annoying you can whip it out and say no look what I've got and that usually kills about an hour of time I think Um, but yeah for the most part it's good fun top tips I love it (laughs) so before my gets too frustrated with these people taking your attention away from uh, we'll go into a couple of rapid fire questions. Okay. What is your most overrated or underrated travel destination? Uh, overrated, probably a controversial one, but I think New York. It's just a personal thing. I 
having grown up in big cities, I just don't find it that engaging to go to another great big city and to spend lots of money on food and lots of money on drinks and just be surrounded by lots of shopping. Sounds fair enough. <laughs> and is there a most underrated? Underrated. Um, I absolutely fell in love with Japan. I really did. I, I was lucky enough to be able to get three weeks out of my first visit, but it just didn't feel like long enough at all. And every single place that I went to, I kept thinking, I just want to come back here. And I could I could easily probably spend six months or a year just traveling around. So enigmatic and exciting. Uh, if you had to give a TED talk about something that you are not known for, what would it be and why? These are really hard questions. Oh my gosh. Um, Based on what you were saying before we started recording, I think this should probably be cricket. Oh, yeah, definitely. I was, oh my gosh, yes. Well, I grew up in Edgbaston. Um, I then lived in Headingley and then I lived up the road from Lords. And I've invariably just found myself drawn to cricket. Um, I mean, my family are Indians, so that was just kind of in my blood. But yes, I, I think probably cricket. I went to the Lou and Manisha's house and um, there's actually some wickets oh gosh, with the Lou I- roll on. <laughs> Yes, there are. God, yes, I totally forgot about that. Yes, that was a wedding gift. Um, We've got a set of stumps next to the toilet. And when we were asked what engraving we wanted on it, my husband said, better out than in. It did make me chuckle when I went to the loo. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes, you're right. I think cricket's probably the right one. (laughs) Um, Is there a tool or technique that's helped you along your journey, either career or physical, uh, where things are not going well? One tool that I do use, um, which has served me really, really well, actually, not necessarily when things aren't going well, but when I'm talking to people, I suddenly think this is a really great story and I really want to engage with what this person's saying without them being aware of me noting down what they're saying or recording them. Um, I often just nip off to the loo quickly and I have a small, like a really tiny notepad in a pocket and I'll quickly in two minutes write down what they're eating, what their hair looks like, what they smell like. They've got a bit of food in their teeth or something. Because those are the things that you don't remember. I'm like now I, very paranoid that I have something like, in my teeth <laughs> and I haven't put deodorant on. I'm like, did I? I think I did. Because <laughs> it's, you know, you always remember what you guys are talking about. And, you you know, you can always, you know, jog your memory for that sort of stuff. But it's the tiny, tiny detail. Literally, like, there's a tiny bit of spinach in their front tooth throughout that half an hour you chatted. Or... You know, they were drinking Lapsang Souchong tea that made the whole carriage smell really smoky. It's that sort of detail that when your readers are sitting home in Yorkshire with your book will make them feel like they were in that train compartment with you. And you can't rely on memory for that. You always think you've remembered everything, but you don't. And often when I was writing my book, I would flick through my notes and suddenly just sit there for about 10 minutes thinking oh my gosh, I had completely and utterly forgotten that. And I would just find some scratchings that I'd done, which I knew I'd done in a loo and think, great, now I can actually sort of build that person up properly and really colour them. Um, so yeah, it's a good good tip. I love that. I'm so stealing that. Next time you see me <laughs> nipping off to the loo, you know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> Spinach and teeth. <laughs> Do you have any recommendations of books, films, podcasts, or other resources that some could dig into to get a bit more of an idea of some of the things you were talking about, whether that is tools of writing and becoming better at the skill of writing or the skill of drawing ideas and stories out of people and seeing a place better. Do you know what? I tell you who's a fantastic person to follow. Um, Nikkei Shukla. He does a really, really great newsletter of creative writing, which I know is obviously not travel writing, um, but he sends it out 
every week and it's just excellent advice for anybody that wants to do any kind of writing and what would you be doing now if you weren't doing what you do uh do you know what I'd probably be doing something for a charity I think in fact I just had this conversation with my husband a couple of days ago saying why on earth did I go into something where I don't get paid any money (laughs) with the skills that I have um and I think I probably would do something like that but just being able to write and being able to you know convey information to people in a way that's packaged to you know literally engage people and to know how to do that is a skill and I think I'd like that to be done in a way that's really beneficial to people. So I probably would for a charity. Getting commissioned to do stuff is a product of the people you know often. Yes. Um, how have you found that cultural and social navigation of travel writing? Do you know what? Actually, when I decided to go to India and do my book, I actually just got in touch with an online editor at The Guardian, just completely out of the blue. I had never met her before, but I just sent her an email saying, I'm going off to do this trip for five months. And I wondered if I could just pop in and have a chat with you about a couple of ideas I've got. Would you mind going for a coffee? I'm in the area next week. And I wasn't, I wasn't in the area at all. Um, But she wrote back and she said, yes, fine, just pop in Tuesday at four. And I thought, oh, okay. And I did. And I went in and I met her. And because I'd met her face to face and I talked her through my trip rather than trying to sort of convey all of it through email, um, she said, yeah, OK, great. I, you know, can you write me 10 of the best train journeys in India? And another, I can't remember what the second piece was. Um, and I did. And those were my first ever travel commissions. And I realized off the back of that, that you just have to be loud and bold <laughs> Um to get into people's faces and you know she'd never heard of me and she had no reason to to do that but I think because we'd sort of sat together and had a coffee and she we'd been able to talk at length about what it was going to be um she was very happy to commission me and so in fact all all my travel commissions came off the back of my book and I think if anyone's going to go into travel writing the one thing I would say was you know, do find a niche and, and find something really, really specific to you that you really do care about um, that not many people do. And for me, um, I think people often think that you can't pitch travel if someone's just done the same thing recently. But you can, you absolutely can, because you're different. Your story is going to be different. That city that you went to six months ago has changed already. The restaurants will be different. The people will be different. The you know, prices will be different. The hotels are new. You know, places evolve all the time. So I think, you know, future people wanting to get into travel shouldn't worry that everything's already been, you know, trod already because it hasn't. If you go out there, you can just write a whole new book. And, and you just have to always remember that, that there is space. There is always space to go and do it. I think that's fascinating what you say about like sort of individualism and and being personable as well, because Mm. I used to work as Red Bull's adventure editor. And to be honest, if you're sat in an office and someone says, can I come in for a cup of coffee? You want that contact. So people are likely to say yes. I can't can't actually remember who told me that. It might have been one of my tutors actually at at City, but they said, just ask people if you want to go for a coffee. Because they said everyone at the desk is desperate for a reason to just get up in the mid-afternoon and go out. Um, and I tried it and it worked. Yeah. And it's worked a couple of times. I did it when I um, I got a column for the Telegraph one before I went to do this book. Um, and I literally just got in touch with Michael Kerr, who it doesn't work there anymore, but he was he was so lovely. He was a railway expert. He commissioned my first ever piece. Same here, for a me too. Newspaper. He, I think he, I, I really miss him being there. He was a, he was an excellent editor and a really lovely man. And I just sent him an email saying um, I'm planning on going to do this book, and I'd love a column. And I never thought I'd have the balls to just write to someone at Telegram and say I want a column. 
And he just wrote back saying, that sounds like a really interesting idea. Let's meet. Um, unfortunately, he wasn't there when I finally did get around to doing the book, but I still got the column. Um, but yeah, because I, I knew that I could give them this packaged, ready-made copy. Uh, they didn't have to pay me to go and do it. They, you know, they didn't have to fund anything. It just got sent to them. Um, it was it was taken. So um, yeah, come up with come up with a really strong idea. And I, I loved, um, I read somewhere that you said, the less you carried, the less you worried. And that the whole art of slowing down really was a beneficial thing. Because my partner, Charlie, his Instagram handle is slow down, do less. He's oh, really? fully on board with this it's plan. Perfect. But yeah, so what was it about train travel specifically that made you slow down and appreciate things in a different way? Well, I think, so, so trains for me, it, it's funny actually, when I went to India, it wasn't because I liked trains. It was because I wanted to see the country and I wanted to spend four months just traveling, you know, leisurely. But by the end of it, I realised that it had actually become a love affair with trains because they they were just the method sort of for me to get around. I didn't even give them a second thought. And then on a day to day basis, I thought this is the most relaxed I've ever felt being away from home. And I'd hop on and I could just sort of sit back or in Indian trains lie back because you've got sleeper berths in every train. And I would just lie back and think, this is brilliant. I've got nine hours to read. I can write a letter to a friend I haven't been in touch with for a while. I can go and investigate the dining car. Or I can just sit in a doorway with a cup of tea and just watch mountains go by and, you know, kids playing cricket outside. And I can just be in the moment all the time. Yet I'm still getting to the destination. It's not like I'm stopping off and delaying myself. I'm still getting there. And that's what train travel really kind of brings home to me the fact that it doesn't interfere with what you're doing you can do anything you want and you still get from a to b and i think there's there's no other form of transport that you can do that none and this is a really trite question so i apologize but <laughs> is there for our listeners any train journey that you're like that is a must do bucket list go and do it train journey yes i think if you've got the time and you're able to go out there the Qinghai Tibet Railway from Shanghai to Lhasa is the most spectacular journey in the world, without a doubt. Um, it's 56 hours in total, but you wow. can break it up um, from Shanghai to Xining or Shanghai to Xi'an, where you can go and visit the Terracotta Warriors and just chill out for a bit. Then you can do the second leg. Um, you go through the Qinghai Plateau. The scenery is like nothing I have ever seen on this earth before. It's just flat, yellow expanse of plateau with screamingly blue sky yaks just raggedy yaks dotted out the place tibetan flags everywhere and then suddenly the kunlun mountains turn up and it's just ice blue and cold and glowing and then you descend into lhasa valley and it's it's impossible to kind of describe but it's it's absolutely stunning oh my gosh that sounds breathtaking literally breathtaking i had the worst altitude sickness on that train uh, because we travel at 5200 meters um but beyond the headaches and feeling a little bit nauseous, the the views were just so immense that you sort of forget about that side of things. Do you but think yeah, I can take a six month old on said journey? Ha! Oh, probably not up to those uh, heights, I wouldn't think, it. but you might have to wait a little bit. <laughs> okay, something for the future. <laughs> Manisha, thank you so much for your time today. It's been so nice to meet you and to meet Maya. It's been great fun. Um, thank you. And she's how- having a brilliant time with Ash. Ash, Ash is pulling faces currently. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but how can people follow you, keep in touch? What they, how can they keep connected? Um, so my Twitter handle is Monisha underscore Rajesh, I believe. 
Um, I've also got, I have a sort of public page on Facebook where you can find me quite easily. Um, also 80trains.com, very easily rememberable. Um, and Instagram, I'm also on there. Um, and I'm very happy to sort of um, answer train questions from people. I get quite a lot of emails from readers asking, where would you recommend if I've only got two weeks? Or are there any rail passes that I can get from, you know, Amtrak or Japan or whatnot? And, you know, if people just want ideas, they're very welcome to just get in touch. And I'm happy to try and piece something together amazing because ash and i very diligently we tried to find your book um but we couldn't it was it's out out of print isn't it not out we, of print out of stock a, yes we've got a reprint coming in this week yeah another one. so yes it will be available back on amazon and all good bookshops yeah another, another reprint which is great and also my paperback is out at the end of january amazing it's a sign of a popular book when when you need to reprint yeah i know it's great uh, i've had a great time today largely because i spent at least half of it playing with maya trying to keep her entertained uh if anyone out there has got any specific questions for manisha yes you can send yep. them directly to her yeah. get in touch on twitter as she mentioned or send them to us and we will certainly be sure to put them to you next time we catch up with you that sounds good thank you very much ash and Pip. thank you so much Thanks for listening to that episode of The First Mile. We've really enjoyed making this show and we'd love it if more people could hear it. So if you have enjoyed that episode, please could you do a couple of things to help others find The First Mile. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app. It really doesn't have to be long. Send the link to this episode to a friend who might be interested or simply take a screenshot of this episode and share it on social media. Make sure you tag us in it at Ash Bardwaj and at Pip Stewart. Then go and put your feet up with a nice cup of tea. Thanks for listening. and We'll see you next time on The First Mile. This episode of The First Mile was supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. Each episode of Further Faster is packed with inspiration and insight about extreme exploration and adventure, and we listen to it whenever we want to blow our minds about what's possible. Just search for Further Faster on your podcast app to find it.